Hello, and welcome to the first in Investors Chronicles two-part podcast series on the Ideal Portfolio. I'm James Norrington, and for part one, my guests are Graham Harrison, Managing Director of ARC, Asset Risk Consultants, and Financial Risk Modelling Expert, Dr. Ron Piccinini. In part two, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Booley looks under the bonnet of how professional managers make tactical decisions, but today our focus is on the art of strategic portfolio management. If we could come first to you, Graham, ARC provides the most widely used risk-adjusted benchmarking for UK asset managers. The Investors Chronicle portfolio that I ran with you for this week's feature was benchmarked against your steady growth category. Can you tell us a bit more about how their ARC benchmark indices work, please? The, the ARC private client indices are compiled from tens of thousands of underlying discretionary portfolios that are being run by over 80 different discretionary private client fund managers. So we're gathering data from those fund managers about how the man in the street, his portfolio is performing. And then we are grouping that vast number of portfolios together into four different what we call risk categories. You could think of, think of them as, as essentially representing the amount of equity market exposure that a portfolio would have and the steady growth index, which your model uh, was uh, compared against, would have an an equity content in the sort of range of probably 50 to 70%. So portfolios with that sort of equity content would end up in our steady growth category. The way we actually divide them up is mathematically using volatility as a measure. And the band is 0.6 times equity risk up to 0.8 times equity risk. So I think your portfolio came in in that band. I think it was point. Six, three, and so it was placed in that category. It was interesting with ours because ours is a is a pretty much we we back tested a, a strategy that we will look to manage actively going forward, but we used it passively because we didn't have the track record um, of, of active management to run the test. Um, so I guess it wasn't truly a fair comparison. But it was interesting that testing it as a passive strategy, our current allocation where we used a lot of cash, that it did perform very well relative to the benchmarks um, and and also to the. To, well, it slightly underperformed the benchmark, but it outperformed the peer group quite um, substantially. Uh, what do you think this says about risk management of active managers versus more passive styles? So the first thing to say is that there's no question that more passive strategies have had a period where they are, they, they've outperformed more active strategies, where those passive strategies had a greater bond content. The average discretionary private client manager has been um, fairly shy of investing in in bonds for a while, and to the extent that bonds then do well, they certainly would have would have underperformed. In terms of the index, the way the index is is constructed it essentially represents the middle. So, 50% of private client portfolios we would expect to have underperformed the index, and 50% would have outperformed. So, your portfolio, uh, your model is is in that top. Uh, 50%. To understand exactly why, it would, of course, require some analysis. But when you invest passively, the, the element that you're essentially missing is the search for alpha. It's the search for outperformance by way of picking the right, the right stocks, the right markets, and, and timing movements between those markets. So it's, it's not surprising that 
your model with, with, with a degree of cash is outperforming the average portfolio with the same risk because you've effectively got full market exposure on all of your investments, so 100% beta, if you like, in all of your investments, whereas the average private client manager has an element of alpha in there and alpha is more of a constant. It's more, it behaves more like cash than, than the market. So I'm not that surprised. But it is certainly telling that a passive strategy would have performed uh, that well. And I guess the question then is all about costs and, and whether you could have actually got that performance in, in real life. Thanks, Graham. Part of the risk and reward for any portfolio comes from its exposure to an underlying passive benchmark, obviously. This exposure is, of course, its beta. Alpha is the additional loss or reward a manager derives from their active decisions to tilt away from the, the market or benchmark. Um, just clarifying that for benefit of our uh, listeners. These are widespread concepts amongst the professionals, but for ordinary investors, risk and reward is more about what they could lose or gain. So if I could just bring you in here, Dr. Ron Piccinini, you've designed algorithms for US risk consultancy firm Coverson. Traditional bell curve risk models, just to, to clarify, um, they, these are based on the work of the German mathematician Carl Gauss, um, who, who's around in the 19th century. Uh, these old sort of Gaussian risk models, they, they would predict our portfolio losing on average about 3.5% in the worst of months, and that's about a, a 0.95% or 1 in 200 probability. Your model suggests, however, that we could lose on average around 8% in the worst of months. Can you tell us a bit more about how you arrived at this figure and why you think this is a more realistic assessment of the risk uh, our portfolio faces in the real world? Well, one of the main evolutions you know, since the, the great financial crisis uh, has probably been you know, the move to uh, more realistic risk models. Uh, so we call this, in uh, the technical jargon, is heavy-tailed uh, distributions. And so are, those are mathematical models that uh, assign much more credible, if you want, um, probabilities to tail events. So tail events are events that are happening far away from the mean, and so even though the standard has been or had been, you know, sort of the standard deviation Gaussian world, you know, if you apply better models for it or more sophisticated, you know, you're going to get different answers. So what we do is, is look at the history of the portfolio and then uh, take the riskiest, if you want, uh, distribution that could explain the returns of this portfolio. Uh, we look at every um, monthly return in this case. Uh, and we came up with uh, as a 8.02%. Uh, obviously, the decimal is not important. It's about 8%. And that would represent the expected tail loss of this portfolio at uh, 99.5%. And so to contrast this, as you say, to the old Gaussian model, you know, uh, value at risk, even at 99.5%. So that's the type of bad month that might occur once in 200 months. But it, it won't happen at, you know, at regularly uh, pace intervals. You know, so you'd never know when that thing could occur. Um, but, you know, yeah, relate this to, to the old metrics where, you know, people who still you know, who are using Gaussian uh, models might have come with a risk of 3.5%. So basically the choice of models uh, would change the estimation of risk by a factor of 2.3 in this case. Thanks, Ron. This level of analysis really is illuminating in terms of the way people consider the pain of potential losses. Graham, how might this level of analysis affect the way money managers approach the issue of risk with their clients? It's going to be a really difficult set of conversations with clients to help them understand what the tail risk that they're taking might be. I think that what the industry has tried to do is to give some sense of what they tend to call like a you know, 5% chance and you know, how much might be lost, you know, once every 
you know, 20 years or something like that. It's going to be very difficult if, if there's going to be a focus on, on the worst that could happen because all, all of those models assume that behavior patterns are going to work out in particular ways. So I'm not sure the extent to which private clients, it's going to help private clients for them to get this severe event analysis. Where it does help uh, will probably be the investment managers who are seeking to understand more about the dynamics of what they're doing, particularly if they've moved away from a traditional set of assets. So if they're not just holding cash and bonds, but they're holding other assets, then I think the sorts of analysis that, uh, that Ron and his group are doing become incredibly valuable, but probably more for the managers than for the private clients. So Ron, with the analysis that you've done, I mean, our portfolio is it's, uh, it's two years old, um, the back testing that we did. How did you go back to get um, the, the number of parameters that, that could give a, a statistically robust analysis to work out the probability of this 8% figure taking into uh, account severe events you know, such as 2008-2009 financial crisis? Again, you know, uh, when you're trying to estimate uh, unknowns, right, how much can something fall uh, if you, you know, don't, don't have a good enough sample? Basically, you enlarged the uncertainty based on the number of the observations that you have. And so we, we have a method to do that um, systematically, which comes back to that. So, you know, obviously more, more data is better, uh, but that shouldn't be a, a showstopper most of the time. Maybe a quick example. You know, if I'm flipping 10 coins and I get six heads, well, there's a number of uh, probabilities attached to that coin that could have generated that sequence. And how you choose that distribution, uh, if you're a risk manager, you know, you say, well, what's the riskiest distribution that could have generated this versus what's the most likely? I think that's the key of what we're trying to do here. Uh, I, w- I would like to not necessarily respond to what Graham was saying, but I, I think he- he's correct. Um, you know, the-, the tail analysis versus what, you know, the regular um, individual investor sees that, I think it's spot on. You know, we, we see in the U.S. a, a move towards uh, the advisors and, uh, you know, the, the most sophisticated people using those type of models. I would say that from an advisor's point of view, it's always the advantage of, uh, of setting the proper expectations because, again, if, if I'm in the shoes of, the, of an advisor, I, I tell my client, you know, if you invest in this portfolio, you know, your 95% risk is, I don't know, 2%, and then... Um, you end up in a situation where you actually lose 8%. The client math in his own head uh, is going to be, wow, this guy was off by a factor of four. Mm. So he, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and I'm going to look for uh, somebody who's more knowledgeable. So um, now, are they able to make good decisions based on that? that that's all different ball of wax, and I think uh, Graham is right to, uh, to say, well... Um, you know, you, you got to move slowly on, on those types of things, or is it really useful? Uh, but um, there is definitely some place where you need to communicate the downside to the stakeholders in general. Looking at the, the Gaussian figure and, and our tail risk is using your metric is, is twice as high. I, I feel a lot more confident in my allocation that, you know, what I could lose in a bad period from, for, right. for our portfolio. So uh, I think from the point of view of us, trying to manage uh, portfolios uh, it's good to, to have a look on these more robust measures than we've we've used in the past another aspect of the report that i find interesting is the level of diversification offered we see we've got this figure an asset interaction of 42 percent so our portfolios are using a number of etfs targeting different fixed income equity investments and and some some real estate and some gold as, as well as our cash position so what does our asset interaction figure of 42 percent mean ron 
Literally, it, it means that because of the way uh, the assets in this portfolio interact with each other, and that is, you know, do they zigs when the other zags, uh, 42% of the idiosyncratic risk got diversified away. So if you were to add up all the risks, individual risks in the portfolio, and compare this to the overall portfolio risk, the overall portfolio risk is 42% less risky than the sum of individual uh, risks. And so... That's the technical definition. In practice, it means that this is a well-diversified portfolio. Okay, so a, a big chunk of the risk get diversified away, and it means that uh, not all of those uh, assets in the portfolio um, are going to have their worst day together uh, at the same time. Diversification is always an interesting topic where you know people think it's just having different asset classes, and um, it, it's a little more than that. You know, you want to have evidence that, you know, during regular market uh, times, well, you know, you might have correlations and things like that, but during uh, stress events, those correlations may actually change quite dramatically. And so the asset interaction here uh, is trying to capture that to say, uh, how are those assets moving when it matters in terms of uh, risk management? So here, 42%, uh, that's what we'd call something uh, well diversified. Managers will take a diversified or concentrated approach to asset risk, depending on their reading of the market. Graham, we're seeing a lot of managers increase their concentration towards equities at the moment. Might this be considered to be tactically adding risk in portfolio jargon? Discretionary managers have risk bands that they're working within. Mm. And one of the things that they're trying to do is to work out when to reduce the risk of a portfolio or increase the risk of a portfolio. And they sort of make those decisions based on what they see as the momentum in the market, the opportunity set to buy cheap assets or to sell expensive assets and and, and take an early profit. So what we've been seeing um, somewhat surprisingly, I think, uh, in the last sort of um, six months to a year is that equity weightings have been creeping up, have been allowed to creep up. And so uh, many... Uh, discretionary fund managers are now what they would call overweight their neutral position in equities. And one of the reasons they've done that is that then they don't like bonds um, and they're struggling to find other asset classes that they think are going to add uh, add value. So overall, the risk profiles, if you like, in, in a sense are going up of those portfolios because of the equity overweights. But managers are saying that it's safer to be invested in equities um, going into you know, the next sort of uh, part of the cycle than it is to be invested in other assets. So, so really when what we're looking at, the way to judge a manager is, is the, the, the reward that they're getting for the risk that they're taking on in a portfolio. Um, and, and Ron, that's another element of the report that you prepared for us uh, on our, our portfolio. Um, we've got a metric here called reward to risk, which is uh, we've got a figure of 1.41 or 1.42, sorry, rounded up. Could you tell us what that, what that means and, uh, and whether that's a good figure we've got for our portfolio here? Uh, yeah, certainly. So um, figures above 1.02 we, we would consider to be good. The reward to risk, it, it, that, that measure here, uh, CFA crowd in the US called this the omega ratio. Uh, it, it's basically your expected gains over your expected losses. And so it's quite easy to understand. You know, if you like gains more than losses, then, you know, your ratio above one is good. Uh, so 1.4, it's, it's very good, uh, I would say. Um, and so 
you know, it's it's an evolution from the the sharp ratio, which was uh, you know the denominator of uh, of the sharp ratio used to be the standard deviation of uh, of the returns of the portfolio, and um, you know it's a limited view uh, of risk. So the the next evolution was indeed the the omega ratio, and that's what we're measuring. So how has risk management evolved, especially since the global financial crisis, and how are professional investors responding to the greater regulatory onus on them to monitor risk and the suitability of their portfolios for clients? Well, first, I think, you know, stakeholders uh, want to be better informed of the risks uh, being taken. And so, to some extent, this has led to a significant revamping of the models being used uh, in terms of mathematical sophistications. And I think this has been aided also by the availability of better data sets, you know, better database technology, better computing power, so you can actually uh, get better results in an acceptable amount of time. And in terms of risk management itself, I think that there's also an added uh, focus on understanding the unknowable. And, and you know, there's things you can know, things that you know you don't know. And so how do you manage those unknowns? That, I think, is, is something that's been a lot uh, more prominent since the since the GFC. So, you know, those unknowns being managed either through position sizing or, or, and or hedging. So, Ron, how have, how have firms been measuring risk in the past and, and what are the new ways to, to measure risk-adjusted turns and, and, and why are these more representative of real life? Well, first of all, risk used to be sort of an afterthought. You know, uh, people were just, well, how much money are we making? The GFC kind of recalibrated those things, at least on paper. Uh, you know, I think from a technical point of view, typically, you know, what we'd see was a, you know, value at risk at 95% uh, based on the Gaussian distribution. That was, you know, the risk measure. And now, you know, you have a, a better understanding that uh, those models are very limited uh, and are not really designed to, to function in uh, financial markets or economics in general. So, you know, you have this... Um, more pervasive use of uh, heavy tail distributions uh, everywhere. And in the U.S., we even see this. Uh, and there's like three or four firms now that offer this at a financial planning level, you know, trying to help uh, people understand and make a wise choice with the riskiness of their, with their risk preferences. And so, you know, again, heavy tail distribution, um, those are, you know, sophisticated mathematical models that assign more realistic probabilities to large, large price movements. So not only we're using better models, but we're also going deeper in the tails. So, you know, it used to be 95%, but, you know, a lot can happen in the remaining 5%. I'll just give you an example, but in the U.S., uh, you're in the top 5% of wealth if, if your wealth is uh, $1.9 million. So if I just give you, well, you know, wealth is $1.9 million, that doesn't really describe the probability of, of seeing a billionaire, isn't it? So... You know, a lot can happen in the, the, the last 5% of the distributions. And so moving to a 99.5% type, expected tail loss, et cetera, uh, those are things that, that I think we see a lot more. And then again, I think there's an effort to understand better the vulnerabilities of a portfolio. So, you know, you, you want to look at can one holding take down the entire portfolio? Uh, and in terms of stresses, you know, are the assets in your portfolio have a tendency to move together, either up or down? I remember it was like two years ago when, um, you know, the typical thing is, well, I'm going to, you know, have, a, let's say, U.S. stocks, and I'm going to diversify with international growth stocks. Well, uh, if I remember right, China was down 7% uh, one morning. Well, in the U.S., it was down 3%. So you can argue that you're diversified because you have two asset classes, but in reality, when there's a shock to the system, 
uh, they tend to have their bad days at the same time. So understanding those new relationships, understanding that correlations uh, do change and correlations are very imperfect statistical measures to measure that, uh, I think those are the evolutions you, you, you've been seeing in, uh, in the technical terms uh, since the GFC. So, Graham, here in Europe, one of the aspects of MIFID 2 is going to be more focused on the losses clients of discretionary managers might suffer. Under MIFID 2, there's a new reporting requirement that a manager has to report if during a reporting period there's a greater than 10% loss. Now, this is interesting because that, that never used to happen in the past, but what it does is it's moving the debate away from measuring risk in terms of the variability of returns over time or volatility towards the experience of loss, which can be measured by, you know, worst month, drawdown experience, you know, peak to trough and recovery period. And MIFID 2 rules with this reporting, if your loss is too great, is going to give a a much uh, greater focus on what you're actually experiencing in terms of risk, if you like. If If my volatility is plus or minus 10 around a level, plus 10 is not really risk. That's gratefully received. It's the minus 10 that they're worried about. It's the experience of loss that they want to focus on. So this is all to do with suitability and, and transparency, which one of the goals of MIFID 2 is, is making sure investors know the potentially the real pain of if, if an investment goes against them. Absolutely. The danger is that investors will then receive that piece of knowledge and panic. And that actually will then be the worst possible outcome because generally selling um, positions when they have just taken a dive proves to be um, a very poor uh, investment decision. They should either be left to recover or you should even buy more of the cheaper asset. So there's a, a slight worry, I think, in the industry as to how the recipients of these letters or this information are going to react but it is helpful for investors to understand that their investments do go up and down over time and if they do have particular tolerances for loss they're going to learn that they've hit those tolerances quicker that's great so thanks again to graham harrison of asset risk consultants and ron piccinini of coversome for those insights You can find out more about the Investors Chronicle Tactical Asset Allocation Portfolio and how managers have chosen their investments for the rest of 2017 in this week's magazine or on the website. Also, be sure to listen to the second podcast where Kate Beerley interviews some of the professional managers who have contributed to the feature.